Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Amen. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 66. O bless our God, ye people. And make the voice of his praise to be heard. Who keeps our soul among the living. And suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidest affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out unto a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. Instill into our minds, O Lord, the glory of thy praise, that while we shun the burnings of this world, we may under thy guidance be carried into eternal refreshment. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father who hath heard our prayers. Glory be to the Son, our resurrection and life. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the mercy of Father and Son, which hath not been turned from us, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we continue our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we are camped out in question four, and we're studying what Scripture says about the one divine essence. So uh, let's read this question and answer. It's on your bulletin, page five together, and then we'll look at uh, the divine name, Holy. So question four asks, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, Good. So what does it mean to say that God is holiness or God is holy? When most people think of holiness, they think of a personal moral righteousness. And God is, of course, personally righteous. Uh, but that is not uh, the only or even primary signification of holiness in the Bible. In the Bible, to be holy simply means nothing more than to be distinguished. To be holy is to be distinguished, to be different. In Hebrew, this is marked by the word kadosh, and many things are called kadosh or holy in Scripture. Does anyone know what the very first thing that is called holy in the Bible is? Anyone want to take a guess? Jack, you want to take a guess? Malachi, you want to guess? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, that's a pretty good guess, but it is wrong. Yeah, back there. The dove. Ooh. Also, also a good, good uh, guess, but, but wrong. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just tell you. Uh, the very first thing that is called holy in the Bible is the ground. The ground. God says to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.5, 
Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Good. So uh, later in Exodus, we are told that the Sabbath is holy. In Exodus 28, we are told that clothes can be holy. We learn also that places like the sanctuary can be holy. And other inanimate objects like oil and furniture are likewise called holy. So you can see here, obviously, oil does not have personal moral righteousness, nor does the ground. That's not uh, the essence of what holiness is. It is to say it's distinct. It's different. And then depending on what the thing that is holy is, then you can further determine what kind of holiness we are talking about. Now, uh, when it comes to God, holiness refers to his altogether otherness from everything else. As the seraphim cry in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And as God himself says in Isaiah 40, verse 2, To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. To say that God is holy is to negate or remove two things from him, or rather from our conception of him. First, it is to say that God is not dirty. God is not earthy, and therefore altogether pure and spotless. Second, it is to say that God has no potential, no potency, no room for improvement in him. Rather, God is a fully actualized being that is altogether perfect in every way. Whereas humans grow from babies to adults, from the potential to walk to actually walking, God does not grow or improve or mature in any way but is rather always and forever pure actuality, a fully realized being. He is absolutely perfect and mature, lacking nothing at all. This is what we mean when we say that God is holy. God is different. He is distinct from us, and there is no one and no thing that is his equal, for he is the Holy One. To contemplate these things should remind us of our need to confess our sins, so as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? 
who can forgive sins but God only. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, to be our great physician, to heal us from our sicknesses, but more importantly, to forgive our sins. We ask for your Holy Spirit now as we consider this text. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a new chapter in Mark's gospel and in Jesus' ministry. And already we have seen why Jesus has come. Jesus has come to reverse the effects of the curse. The very same curse that Jesus, according to his divine nature, once pronounced upon the serpent, the woman, and the man in the Garden of Eden some 4,000 years prior to his coming, that same Jesus comes to undo. Mark has demonstrated for us in various ways in this gospel that Jesus is God. He is the Messiah, but that divine identity is something that Jesus is presently trying to keep under wraps. So when the demons declare that he is the Son of God, Jesus commands them to remain silent. When he heals the leper, he tells him to tell nobody. And yet, despite these gag orders, the word has gotten out. A miracle worker has come to Galilee. And as Mark ends chapter 1, he says, uh, And they came to him from every quarter. So Jesus' star is rising. His popularity is increasing. He has gone from uh, an obscure carpenter in Nazareth to someone that all men seek after. Uh, So looking at our text this morning, there are kind of two basic sections to it that we'll look at. Uh, Verses 1 to 12 describe the healing of a paralytic, or as the King James has it, sick of the palsy. And uh, verses 13 to 17 describe the calling of Levi, uh, also known as Matthew, the tax collector. So let's walk through um, our text together. Uh, Starting in verse 1, it says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. 
If you remember how chapter 1 ended, uh, Jesus healed the leper and traded places with him. So the leper, this, this outcast in many ways, can now rejoin society. He can go about his normal life, but Jesus is forced to dwell in the wilderness. He can no longer openly enter the city. So here, uh, he's been out in the wilderness. People are coming to him. Here he attempts to enter Capernaum again. And he goes to Peter's house, which is uh, really, he's kind of made that his own house now. So he goes to Peter's house, and word gets out that Jesus is back. Uh, Some translations just actually have, uh, and it was noised that he was at home. So he's in the house. He's at at the house. It's Peter's house. Uh, Verse 2, it says, And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. So immediately, uh, he goes to Capernaum, immediately a crowd gathers, and it's standing room only. Mark tells us there was no room so much as about the door. Every place to sit or stand and hear is taken. And Jesus, of course, knowing the purpose for which he came forth, the reason for his incarnation, begins to preach to them. Now, uh, while he's preaching in Peter's house, we are told this in verses 3 and 4. And they, referring to these four men, they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And, and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, for the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. So I kind of set the scene for you. Uh, you can imagine an ancient home in Capernaum. Uh, it was typical to have probably what we would call a deck. Um, they would have kind of a second open story, probably with a parapet around it uh, so that people don't fall off. But they'd use their roof as an extra living space. Uh, that would be the place where you could uh, eat or relax in the evening or you know, set out clothes or food to dry. And then there was typically a ladder or a set of stairs, probably in this case, that led up to the roof. And um, you, you can actually Google this if you want to sometime. Uh, archaeologists actually think that they found uh, this, this very house where Peter uh, lived and where Jesus lived and, and ministered. Um, there's, uh, it's pretty easy to identify the synagogue. And I was running the, I was calculating the square footage. Uh, what, what, uh, how many square feet did we decide the sanctuary is? Was it like, six, did we say it was like 1,600 square feet? Something like that? Okay, yeah. So, the, so remember the synagogue that he goes and he casts the leper out. That, I, I think, is roughly uh, 3,700 square feet. So it's, it's quite a large synagogue. So about you know, a little over twice, I guess, the size of this. So that's a pretty large synagogue. And then you can actually look at the excavations of where this house would have been. And you can kind of map out what the floor plan of the house looked like and how, how big it was. So altogether, it would have been actually like a 5,000 square foot plot. And then there's quite a lot of open courtyard space and then a few different enclosed uh, rooms. You'd have kind of a big central meeting room, which is probably where Jesus is preaching. And then you'd have some other rooms for, you know, he's living with his mother-in-law. Uh, Peter's got his brother uh, uh, living with him, Andrew. Jesus needs a place to stay. So uh, roughly, you know, a 5,000 square foot plot, uh, some outdoor space. And uh, you can actually go, uh, go online and see kind of what this, this probably would have looked like. 
So the roof, uh, the roof was probably made of thatch or tiles. Uh, Luke uses the word tiles in his gospel. Uh, and you can imagine being inside of uh, this house and then, you know, hearing uh, people pulling away at the roof and wondering, hey, uh, what's going on in there? You know, dirt is falling on your head. Jesus is preaching. Uh, so th- this certainly would have interrupted what was going on. And you think, um, if you're Peter, or uh, perhaps the, the house belonged to Peter's mother-in-law, that's also possible, uh, what, would, what would be running through your mind when your, your house is just totally packed, there's no room to sit, and now uh, someone is tearing up your roof, okay? Right? So th- this makes all the moms and, pr- and probably the dads just like, uh, okay, everyone out, right? You think, how would you respond if this was your house, right? You want your house to be a place for ministry, for the Messiah, for God uh, to come hang out and and lay his head there, Uh, this is what's going to happen. You might need to repair your roof uh, a few times. So you think, how would you respond if this was your house? Well, in in verse 5, we see how Jesus responds. Verse 5 says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Notice what Jesus sees here. He could see the hole in the roof. He could see people's expression. He could see all of, there's all these many things that you could possibly see. Would you see what Jesus sees? Would you see this and not think, yeah, they better put that back? Or would you be thinking, wow, look at their faith. Jesus sees their faith. And uh, most likely, almost certainly, it refers to the faith of the four men, not even of uh, the sick man. So he sees Uh, the faith of these four men, he sees their faith by their actions, by their boldness, that they truly believe that Jesus can heal their friend, right? These are some good friends to do this. They really, you know, they really are either tired of carrying you around, they really want you walking again, and and this is the opportunity for that to happen. But uh, you'll notice, what is the first thing that Jesus does? He doesn't actually heal the man, right? Rather, Jesus announces that his sins are forgiven. He calls him son. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, uh, we might ask, why does Jesus do this? There are a few reasons for this, but the first is because uh, there is likely a connection between this man's paralyzed state and the state of his soul. For as bad as being unable to walk is, Jesus saw that this man's soul was even in worse shape. He had sins, and those sins needed to be forgiven. Jesus saw and knew that it was more important for this man's soul to be saved than for him to walk again. So that's the first reason. Jesus is actually giving urgent care, right? The the urgent care is not that he can't walk. The urgent care is that he has sins that need to be uh, forgiven. That's what he most needs. And this should uh, really serve as a reminder to all of us that God knows better what we need than we do. God knows better what we need than we do. We think that we would be better off if we had more money, better health, a bigger house, a better job, better friends, a better spouse, etc. But God knows what we actually need, what we actually need to live eternally and happy with him forever. And oftentimes what we see as a great obstacle to our happiness is what God gives us to increase our happiness in him. Uh, 
people often wonder, you know, if, uh, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you should wonder, how is it, why is it that God um, allows all of these pains and evils and afflictions in the world? Why does he allow so much pain and suffering even in the lives of Christians? And um, the Christian tradition, I mean, even before Christ came, this was a major question that the Hebrews wrestled with. You got a good God, and then you have all of this mess out there. How do you hold those, those things together? And uh, in my experience, this is one of the primary reasons why people don't become Christians or leave Christianity, is because they just don't, they, they have a hard time reconciling who we say that God is and what actually happens uh, in the world. But the Christian tradition um, has answered this question, this why question, uh, by giving five basic reasons. Five basic reasons, five causes for why God afflicts people. So I'm going to just walk through these. There's a little kind of uh, important uh, side uh, path for us. So five reasons why God um, afflicts us or permits suffering. Number one, God does this to increase our merits. God afflicts us to increase our merits. God wants you to be richer. That's that's another way of putting it. God wants your heavenly rewards to be more than they already are. Examples of this would be someone like Job. Job, or you can think of the great martyr, someone like Polycarp. Think about the book of Job. The book of Job begins by describing Job's vast wealth and fortunes, and he is the most righteous man alive. And when the book ends, after all of his suffering, those fortunes are doubled. God afflicts Job, he tests him, so that he can reveal more of his own nature to Job. And those eternal treasures, those, uh, those uh, material treasures that he gets, are uh, sig- signs, they're signals of the eternal treasures that he has uh, laid up for him in heaven. So eternal treasures signify to us by the physical material wealth that God gives to him. So that, that might be why you're suffering. Simply, you know, God wants to bless you more in the age uh, to come. Second reason why God might afflict you is uh, God might afflict you to keep you humble, right? And, and uh, this is like the Apostle Paul, right? So remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he has this thorn in the flesh, what he calls a, a messenger from Satan, and he pleads with God three times for God to remove it from him. And, you know, Paul is probably the smartest person who maybe ever lived, right? He, there, there's the other disciples who are fishermen, and, uh, and then, you know, Paul is the graduate doctor guy. He's, he's a super genius guy. He's gone to heaven and seen things that he's not actually allowed to talk about, right? So he, he has these great uh, revelations, and it's for that reason that God uh, allows him uh, to continue to suffer this way. So this is what God says to him. He asks three times for God to remove the affliction from him, and God says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So this is a pattern for us. If you have an affliction, whatever it may be, and scholars speculate about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, um, it's a good habit to 
to plead with God to take it away, right? Take it away, take it away, and, you know, pray that three times, you know, three real good times. Ask the Lord, and if he does not choose to remove it, it might be because his grace is sufficient for you, and he wants you to be weak so that you don't forget him, so that you, you remember that you're dust, and to dust you shall return. So, you know, you walk with the Lord long enough, he's going he's gonna to cripple you at some point so that you remember uh, to trust in him. So that's another reason why God uh, permits or afflicts us to lay us low so that we'll trust in him. Third reason, uh, God sometimes afflicts us as a discipline or correction for our sins. Uh, this is probably what is going on in this passage with, with this man based on the order of events that happen. Jesus forgives his, sin, his sins first because it was those sins that possibly precipitated his paralyzed state. Uh, you can kind of imagine a, a robber who gets hurt while running away from the police. You know, he crashes his car and is stuck in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. So uh, his affliction, uh, being, being crippled, is the consequence of his sinful actions. But let's say it's through that affliction that he becomes remorseful and repentant, right? So he's, uh, you know, the hardened uh, criminal. He, he's caught by the police. He goes into prison, and that's where he hears the gospel, that's where everything else is taken from him, and he realizes, you know, I actually have just been living for this life. I should be living for the life to come. So God uh, sometimes and often afflicts us as discipline and correction for our sins. Um, and, and if you're, you are a parent, uh, this is something that you pray God does with your children, right? Uh, because there are times when you don't know uh, which kid did it, <laughs> which one is telling the truth. And you have to, you know, you're Solomon with the baby, with the toy, you know, let's split it, divide it in half. Um, so you need to pray to the Lord, please discipline my children for me. You can see what I can't see. I'm not uh, all-knowing. I can't see what they're doing all the time. But you, you want to pray that God disciplines your children. And, you know, sometimes it might mean, you know, they, they walk into a pole, you know, they're walking strutting high and mighty, and they just, you know, uh, face plant. It might be that kind of uh, divine justice. But in, in other ways, uh, you can imagine how this, how this could play out. So uh, God sometimes afflicts us as discipline and correction for our sins. And then the fourth, fourth reason, and this is really the last one as far as Christians are concerned, sometimes God afflicts us for no other reason but to glorify himself. This was the case with the man uh, that was blind in John chapter 9. So the man was born blind. The disciples assumed that it was because of his sins or his parents' sin that he was born that way. And Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Sometimes the only reason for our affliction is for God to reveal his power when he delivers us. Uh, as my former pastor, Doug Wilson, used to say, uh, God loves cliffhangers. God loves cliffhangers. God is a master storyteller, and we are all characters in a story that is going to exalt and magnify the glory of God. We don't know when or if uh, deliverance is going to come. And that's what makes our faith in the midst of that uncertainty so precious and pleasing to our Father. But if you belong to Jesus, you can trust 
that all things are indeed conspiring for your good. God is telling a good story with your life, even if it seems like, you know, you're Frodo about to die on Mount Doom before you get the ring in, right? God knows. He's telling a glorious story with your life, and you want to remember, remember the future, think about the future. What is that story going to look like when it's all said and done? It's going to be better than you or, you or I could ever imagine. So if you belong to Jesus, you can trust that everything that happens to you is conspiring for your good. And often, one of the challenging things when you're suffering is you don't really know which of the four is the reason why. Okay. God doesn't you know, send down little letters or put uh, letters in the sky telling you this is the reason why. But what you can conclude, what scripture gives you, is that you can conclude it's because he loves you. That, that is the end of all of the suffering when you wrestle through. The place you end is it's because God loves you. He gives you the medicine. He gives you the affliction. He gives you uh, whatever you need for life and godliness. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said something like, uh, the greatest blessing that God can give to us is health. Um, or the, the second greatest blessing that God can give us is health, uh, and then the other blessing is sickness, something like that. The, the, or, the, the point is uh, sickness is often the greater uh, blessing from the Lord because of all the effects that it has on us, right? When you're healthy and young and your life is ahead of you, you're mainly thinking about this life. When your body starts to break down, when you get older, you know, when your spouse dies or your children have gone off and you start, you know, you're, you're the dry tree, you're not exactly living for the now anymore, right? You're, you're living for glory. And the trick is, especially if you're a young person, is to live like that when you're young, right? This is what Ecclesiastes is trying to teach everyone, is live with death in mind. Live with death in mind. If you do that, uh, you will become wise. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Whatever our present sufferings, if we look to Jesus and cling to him through them, the blessings on the other side will be exponential. The fifth reason uh, that uh, the Bible gives for human suffering or uh, for affliction, uh, just uh, relates, uh, is only for those who are reprobate or those who are non-elect. For those who God passes over and leaves in their sins, their affliction is just the beginning of the pains of damnation. So one example of this would be uh, King Herod in Acts 12. So King Herod, he goes out in a bad way. Remember, uh, they're, the people are shouting, he's giving some speech, and they're shouting, uh, the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not of a man. And it says, immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. So uh, that's a bad way to go out. Uh, Josephus, he's a Jewish historian, he records the same event and in Josephus' uh, version, uh, it describes really the same, the same thing, but he actually uh, lives for a few days just in agony and then finally dies. So, and, and you could probably harmonize that with what Acts says here. You know, you're eaten of worms, 
uh, from the inside for a few days and then gave up the ghost. Um, other examples of this would be Pharaoh and the Egyptians who hardened their hearts against the Lord. And so for them, uh, the ten plagues were just the beginning of even worse torments in hell, right? So a plague can come upon the land, and it could be either a great sign that God is about to deliver you, or it could be a great sign of judgment that you're about to drown in the Red Sea, okay? This is how God works in history, and he still does this all the time today. So, you know, if there's whatever the next crisis is that God sends upon our nation, uh, it's going to be a great blessing for the people of God in some way, and it's going to be a great cursing for the people who refuse uh, to repent. So uh, those are the five reasons, and uh, I'll post this up on the, on the internet uh, out this week if you want to look at these again. But it's really good to have these as the kind of principal reasons why God permits suffering. And you can think about, you know, what's going on in this Bible story, in this Bible story? What is God uh, doing? He wants us uh, to search those things out so that we can know him. Okay, long tangent, but let's return to our text here. Uh, Verses uh, 6 to 7 say, But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? So here, these scribes are uh, actually quite good theologians. They know that the only person who can really forgive sins is God. The priest might be able to declare a word of absolution or atonement. You know, God has forgiven your sins. But Jesus is clearly forgiving sins as if he has the power to do so. They recognize that he is speaking with, uh, with authority and not as the scribes speak. This rightly perplexes them if they don't believe that Jesus is God, right? If you don't believe Jesus is God and some guy just is, you know, saying your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, uh, you should be skeptical. Uh, And this sets up a great revelation of Jesus' divinity in what follows. So verse 8 says, And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Notice again the irony here. Who else but God can read minds? Who who can read people's thoughts? And here Jesus says, you know, why are you thinking about that? (laughs) They're they're thinking, this guy's not God, and then he reads their their minds. So already uh, the scribes should know this is no ordinary man. Then verses 9 to 12, Jesus poses a riddle. To them. And this is really the heart of the text. This is the riddle. Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk? The way you answer that question will tell you what kind of person you are. <laughs> this is what separates those who live by faith from those who live by sight. Which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or arise, take up thy bed and walk? Continuing in verse 10, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Jesus is crafty. Jesus is wise, and he intentionally forgives this man's sins first, which is the, most, uh, the more important thing, 
to then provoke this charge of blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. And then because the forgiveness of sins is invisible, it's not something anyone there could prove had happened or not, he then commands the man to be resurrected, to arise, take up his bed, and go home. Now, um, imagine for a moment that you were in Peter's house watching this all go down, right? Uh, you've got a little bit of ceiling dust on your shoulders, and you go, you go out and you go home, and you tell you know, your wife, your kids, your friends what you saw Jesus do. What would, you, what would be your report to them? Would you go and tell them, Jesus forgave a man's sins? Or would you probably say, I saw this guy heal a man. He got up and walked. What would seem more miraculous to you? This is the riddle, right? It really shows you what you care about, what you think is more uh, important and miraculous. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what Mark is doing. He's trying to teach us, of course, that the forgiveness of sins is a much bigger miracle than the healing of a paralyzed man. The forgiveness of our sins is a much bigger miracle than the healing of a leper or the healing of a paralytic or the casting out of demons or the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. But we don't think like that. That's how earthly-minded we are. Yes, these are all miracles and glorious testimonies of Jesus' power, the casting out of demons, the healing. But what Jesus really wants everyone in that room to learn is that we are all spiritually paralyzed. Sin has real consequences, and Jesus has the power to deal with those consequences. This is the real miracle and the most important gift we should seek him for. You should think about then, if these men were willing to climb up to the roof, take, take off the roof, and uh, you know, let the man down to be healed, you know, to what extent should we go to have our sins forgiven? To what extent should we go to have other people's sins forgiven? Right? You, you could argue here that Jesus forgives this man's sins not on account of anything about him, but on the, the basis of these other guys' faith. Of course, you need personal faith for God to forgive your sins, but Jesus recognizes our faith when we speak up and bring the gospel to other people, when we do whatever it takes so that sins can be forgiven. This lesson is reinforced by the second uh, section of our text, the calling of the fifth disciple. Uh, so far, we have seen the calling of Simon and Andrew, James and John, these sets of brothers, all fishermen. And now, Jesus is going to add a tax collector to his entourage. Uh, verses 13 and 14 say this, And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. So this is the calling of Levi, also called Matthew. So this is the guy who wrote the gospel of Matthew. And just as the other disciples were called to follow Jesus in the middle of their workday, so also Levi is called to follow Jesus while he is there sitting at the tax office. 
Um, as most of us know, tax collectors or IRS agents are not exactly the most beloved people in society, right? No, nobody gets excited when the IRS knocks on your door, right? In, in Jesus' day, as in our own, tax collectors represented the oppressive and often tyrannical power of the government. So for a Jew, to become a tax collector was basically to sell out to the man. It was to exchange your nation's heritage and patrimony for unjust gain. Right? And, and tax collectors, uh, by all accounts, they worked on commission. So they, were, they would go bid uh, to the government, all right, here's how much we'll get, and then they would factor in you know, how much profit uh, they're going to try to make off of it. So they would bid uh, for, these, for these jobs, and apparently Levi was able to get that job. So uh, only the people of lowliest character would really stoop to such a vocation, especially if you're a Jew uh, and your name is Levi, right? It's like one of uh, the original guys, right? Uh, so Levi was likely the same man that Simon, Andrew, James, and John had to pay taxes through. So, right, they're all in Capernaum. They're fishermen right there in, in the water. And then uh, Levi's got his tax office and, you know, Fishing is a, is a taxable uh, job. So uh, they're prob- they probably knew each other already. To be a fisherman was at least honest labor, but to be a tax collector was uh, to be numbered amongst the prostitutes. Uh, you're, you're basically a male version, you know, selling yourself out uh, to, to someone else. So you can imagine this kind of surprising and even awkward choice uh, as the other disciples are thinking, uh, Jesus, you're going to choose this guy, and he's, you know, is he going to have to, <laughs> Peter's wondering, am I going to have to take this guy in too? Are we going to need to get another room for him? He's already got a roof to fix. Uh, maybe Levi can pay for it or something, right? So uh, you, you really think, we, we could really preach through the, the whole gospel of Mark. Right now we're focusing on Jesus and who he is, rightfully so. But you could also read the gospel and just, just read it from the perspective of the disciples, what would it be like if I was Peter or Andrew, or, you know, one of these disciples following Jesus? That's one of the reasons why Mark gives us this account. So we know, all right, this is what it means to follow him. And uh, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be uncomfortable, right? We already know this. This is just the beginning of the discomfort. For Levi, he is forced to leave behind his tax collecting business. In order to follow Jesus, he forsakes that life of sin. And the next thing that Levi does is have Jesus over for dinner. Verses 15 to 17. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here Jesus punctuates and makes explicit the reason for everything he's been doing. Jesus has come as a physician, and he is making house calls. He's visited the synagogue, he's visited Peter's house, and now he is whining and dining with tax collectors in Levi's house. It is not because all of these people and places have it all together. In fact, it is because it is the exact opposite. 
right? Nobody, nobody is flattered, at least nobody should be flattered, when you go to the doctor's office and they say, all right, please take off your clothes, let's take a look. But this is what Jesus is doing. The doctor is not there to admire the health and strength of your body. He's there to diagnose and fix what is wrong with you, possibly to cut you open and sew you back together. And this is the great misunderstanding that the scribes and Pharisees have about Jesus. And it's what keeps them from coming into the kingdom. They are blind to their own need for forgiveness. It is their failure to recognize that they are lepers, that they are spiritually paralyzed and need Jesus to heal them. That is their condemnation. And so how does Jesus love these scribes and Pharisees? You know, Jesus is, is everything he does is an act of love. Right? If Jesus does it, it's an act of love. And how does he love scribes and Pharisees? He tells them a proverb. They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is saying to them, you are correct that these people are wicked and need to repent. I am in total agreement with you about that. They are sinners indeed. But I am not here eating and drinking to flatter them or build rapport with them or tell them they can go on living that way. Jesus is there to call them to repentance. And if the scribes and Pharisees had some self-awareness, they would recognize that they are just as much in need of Jesus as these sinners they despise. I'll close with this. There is a God, there is a God, who all of us must stand before on Judgment Day. And Jesus is that God. And Jesus has come in the flesh to forgive sinners. All of the miracles, all of the healings, all of the powerful and mighty works he did and continues to do, which the gospel writers recorded, were to help you and I believe that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is the Son of Man who Daniel beheld some 500 years prior. It says in Daniel 7.13 the following, And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So when you repent and believe the gospel, when you receive forgiveness from the Lord Jesus, you become a part of the Son of Man. And if you are united to the Son of Man, then you shall receive a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom is more valuable than any affliction, than any trouble, or any earthly blessing that you could possibly imagine. For in the kingdom, you get the king himself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are patient, that you uh, speak to us in words that we can understand, that you, uh, you condescend to our carnal ways, our earthly mindedness, our need to see and feel and experience things with our senses. And I ask that as you do these uh, marvelous works 
in the gospel is that we encounter. And as we look around in our own day and see in our children, in our families, in those around us, the, the work that you have done in people. God, we ask that we would be led from this earthly plane to spiritual things, to that kingdom that is to come, to that new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, wherein we will live resurrected forever. God, kindle our love for you, for one another, and for those days that are to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the many charges against Jesus was that he was a drunkard and a glutton. Whereas John the Baptist was an austere man, eating locusts and wild honey, Jesus came eating and drinking with sinners. Jesus was a man who brought the party, who brought the feast, wherever he went. Whether that was turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, or grilling some fish on a charcoal grill after his resurrection, from start to finish, the ministry of Jesus was a ministry that revolved around food. This is because Jesus is himself the food that we need to live. His word is life to us, and we are taught spiritual things by eating and drinking with him. One day, we will be able to touch him and see him in our resurrected bodies. But until then, we have his promise that here at the Lord's Supper, he is present to us. So come, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Uh, Part of being a disciple of Jesus is learning to get along with all the other disciples. This will sometimes include uh, stinky fishermen, uh, former IRS agents, and all other sorts of riffraff like you and me. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, former rappers like you and me. Uh, (laughs) uh, So as we continue to follow Jesus, let us remember why he came. He came for the sick. He came for the sinners. So let us welcome them in and call them to repentance as Jesus did. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.